It's Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is a man who came to this earth, and as far as we know, he never wrote a book. But yet the book that writes about him has outsold every book by far that's ever been written. He is a man, as far as we know, never wrote a song. But yet there are more songs written about this man than anybody who has ever lived. We don't know of him writing poetry, but yet there are more pieces of poetry written about him than any other single man that is alive. As far as we know, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he never left his home for more than a couple of hundred miles away from home. But yet today, 2,000 years later, you can go around the globe and you will find people that know his name and you will find thousands upon thousands that their life has been greatly influenced by this man, Jesus Christ. Tonight, if you do not know this man, Jesus, you're missing out on the greatest, most influential person that's ever walked the face of this earth. Your life can be so much better. Your life can be so much greater if you know Jesus and you are living in the way that He leads. Who is this Jesus? I'd like for us to begin tonight by just thinking about how God would introduce Jesus. And look in Isaiah, the seventh chapter, in verse 14, when Isaiah would prophesy about Jesus coming to this earth, and he would say, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. And then... Matthew would write about this as there would be a greater declaration of this name, Emmanuel, that, that almost sends uh, cold chills up and down our spine when we read in Matthew 1 and 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. This morning we talked quite a bit about the incarnation of Jesus Christ where He is God and He remained very much the all power of God even when He came to this earth. But yet at the same time He was all human, 100% flesh. Incarnation means flesh. And here is God with us, born to Mary. A few chapters over in Isaiah the ninth chapter in verse 6, I'd like for you to notice that what is being implied here is incarnation as it says, as Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You see, the child being born is flesh and blood. The child that was given was God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so the Godhead, the fact that he is deity is referred to in the phrase a, child, a son and his fleshly nature is being referred to as it says, a child is born. Now this morning we studied out of Philippians, the second chapter, and you remember as we looked at verse 6 and 7, we saw in verse 6, who being in the form of God, and you know we talked this morning about form of God, and that's, that's talking about the very nature, the very essence of God. Now skip down in verse 7, but he made himself of no reputation, taking on the 
form of a bondservant. And, and so that again is emphasizing the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He was God. He was flesh and blood. He was man. But what is it that we need to understand about incarnation? Notice this next slide of these four things. When we talk about Jesus Christ coming to this earth and being born as God and man, we think about the fact that for Him to be uh, in, incarnated upon this earth, we're looking at a human birth. And when you read the first couple of chapters of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, or the Gospel of Luke, you see the most beautiful story of a baby being born that has ever been or has ever been recorded. And that's the story of this human birth of Jesus Christ. But you also see human development. In other words, he literally was born a little baby. And, and it wasn't in, in just uh, miraculously reaching down and, and changing him to different uh, transitional points in life. Just as our children, they naturally grow and they naturally develop. That's what Luke the second chapter points out. When you look at, at Luke the second chapter and you read, for example, verse 40, and the child, talking about Jesus, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then we skip down to verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. So sometimes we apply these to say he increased in knowledge, he increased physically, he increased spiritually, he increased socially. What was happening to Jesus? Jesus was a human child, a human young man that was growing and developing just as humans should grow and develop. In other words, he was a perfect example of how a child ought to grow up. But also in this, we also see that he had human characteristics. Look over in your Bible, if you will, to Luke the 24th chapter, and let's look at just one example here where we see human characteristics. And we could look many times in the Gospels. If you know the Bible uh, very well, you know that, that the story of Jesus is contained in the Gospels, and, and there are just many characteristics about him being flesh and blood. This is one particular characteristic uh, being identified here of him being the resurrected Lord because there were some that thought, well, maybe he didn't really come back in flesh and blood. In other words, the resurrection was just his spirit coming back. And so Luke records here to clarify that and say, oh no, it wasn't just the spirit. Jesus literally conquered the grave. He overcame death. And just as he was on this earth in flesh and blood, when he was resurrected, he came back in flesh and blood. Look, if you will, in verse 39. He looks at these individuals that thought they were seeing a spirit because they knew that he had been crucified a few days before. Could it really be that he's alive? And Jesus said in 39, Behold my hands and my feet. In other words, he's saying, Look, look carefully at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. They could have told that by the prints of the nails where they had been and the hands and the feet. He says, Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Did Jesus have human characteristics? Absolutely. He says, I am flesh and bones. Skip down to the end of 41 when he says to them, have you any food here? And it's almost comical to think that here he is, he's come back from the dead, and is he human? Yes, spirits don't go around asking for food. But people that haven't eaten in a few days, they ask for food. And so here is flesh and blood, and, and he's alive, and he wants something to eat. And notice how it's recorded here 
because the purpose of Luke recording this is to prove he wasn't just a spirit. He truly was human even after the resurrection. And so that's why we have 42 recorded. So they gave him a piece of broad fish and some honeycomb and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Was he flesh and blood? Yes. The fourth thing that we'll mention tonight that lets us know that he was flesh and blood is that he was human because while he was on this earth, he had the limitations that humans have. I want to just mention a few for you. And, and if you have interest in, in uh, uh, the, the passages and all with this, I'd be glad to make this available to you. Here's just a few things that lets us know of Jesus' limitations that would be confined to a human body while he was on this earth. While he was on this earth, another passage in Matthew 21 and 18, he hungered, he thirsted, John 4 and John 19. He was weary and he needed sleep in John 4 and Matthew 8. He had pain and even died in 1 Peter 3 and 1 Peter 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. He learned obedience, Hebrews 5 and 8. He was subject to tests and trials as human beings are in Matthew 4 and Hebrews 4. He prayed, Mark 1 and Luke 11. And another thing, not exactly tied into limitations, but similar in what we're talking about here, is the very fact that other human beings recognized him as a human being. They would look at him and they would not refer to him as the God from Nazareth. They referred to him as the man from Nazareth. Or they looked over at him and said, that's Joseph's son. That's the carpenter's son. And so we see some powerful, powerful teachings that come from the very fact that, yes, he was God, but also he was in the flesh. Now, for the next few minutes, as, as we spend the, this next segment of our lesson and then bring it to a close, I'd like for you to turn with me to some passages that show us a few things about the purpose of Jesus coming in flesh and blood. As I mentioned to you this morning, we're talking about a subject that has a depth that no man will find the bottom to this well of, of knowledge and just simple existence. We're talking about the Almighty God here. As human beings, we're not going to be able... Uh, to, to figure that all out. But the things that God tells us, let's bask in this. Let's appreciate this. Let's study it. And so let's look at a few things to say, ask God, why? Why was it necessary that God would come to this earth in flesh and blood? And look with you, Will, in John, the first chapter, and in verse 14 and verse 18, and what we see is that it was going to reveal God to man. In verse 14, he's talking about Jesus when he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John writes here and he says, when we saw Jesus, we saw the glory of God through Jesus. The glory of the one sent by the Father. And notice verse 18 even says it more clearly. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So you see what John is mentioning here is similar to what we were mentioning this morning where we say, nobody's seen God the Father. But then he says, wait a minute. If you've seen the Son... You've seen the Father because the Son reveals the Father to us. 
Now let's look at several points out of Hebrews, the second chapter. Turn to Hebrews, the second chapter. Number two, we see that Jesus coming to this earth was atonement for our sins. In verse 9 and 10 especially, notice if you will, in verse 9 and 10 of Hebrews, the second chapter. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And you see, that was the time that he was made a little lower than the angels. It was for him to die. Crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death. Here it is. For everyone. In other words, he was dying in our place. Remember, the soul that sins, it shall die. But Jesus' death was a substitution. It was a death in our place. He was the perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And that's why when we read in verse 10, it was fitting for him. He was the perfect sacrifice. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. How you as a son or a daughter, how are you going to be brought to the glory of God. Without a Savior, none of us could claim the glory of God. But with Jesus being the atonement for our sins, if we know Christ and if we're one with Christ, then we can say we are sons and daughter of the King. Our life is not only different because of our conduct, but our life is different because of our existence. We truly are individuals that have been redeemed from sin. Think about that for a moment. Not simply just living a Christian life, which is awesome. It is a fact that we have changed. Our sins are forgiven. Why? Because Jesus became flesh and died in our place. Our sins are forgiven. We saw our brother come forward this morning and ask for the forgiveness of sins. We all are aware of the fact that at that moment the Lord washed His soul as clean as any baby, as any person on this earth. Have you thought lately of that gift? How beautiful it is to have all of the guilt of your past sins forgotten by God. The atonement of sin could not be made unless Jesus became flesh, lived a perfect life to die in the place of flesh. It's either going to be our flesh and blood or His flesh and blood. And Jesus came to this earth to become flesh so He could say, it'll be my flesh and blood that dies because God can't die. He had to take on flesh in order to be able to die. It absolutely is a beautiful, beautiful topic. Look at the third thing, still here in Hebrews 2. And that is, I've got tears in my eyes and I cannot read it. The identity with man. Look, if you will, in, in verse 11, 12, and 13. And notice, notice this identity with man here. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Now, is that not identity? He came to this earth to say, you know what? I'm going to sanctify your sins. And, and how many of us, if we didn't know the scripture, we would say, I, I don't deserve to be with him. Look what he's done for me. And look who I am without him. 
I'm an enemy of his. I've sinned against him. I don't deserve it. And now the Hebrew writer says, you know what? The one who's sanctified, that's Jesus. And the ones who have been sanctified, he came to this earth so we could be one. His incarnation, identifying with us, becoming one of us, is absolutely amazing. But also notice he came to destroy Satan. Look at the fourth one here in, in the Hebrews, the second chapter, verse 14. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. And that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now that's powerful. And, and hold your finger uh, let me just flip over real quick and read to you one more passage that reads very similar to this. Listen to 1 John 3. 1 John 3 and verse 8, as he says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. That means the Son of God showed himself on this earth in flesh. He was manifested that he might destroy the works of Satan. 1 John 3 and 8. So why did Jesus come to this earth? Jesus had to take on flesh so that he could die in the flesh so that he could overcome the grave so that he could put Satan in his place to say, one of your enemies that you have brought upon mankind, one of the enemies that you have brought upon mankind is death. I'm going to come. I'm going to die. God is going to resurrect me and we are destroying your enemy of death. A beautiful, beautiful fact. And let's go to Hebrews, the second chapter, verse 15 and 16, as we read about the fact that he came to conquer not only Satan, but he came to conquer death, as we've just mentioned here. Look in verse 15. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Other translations would say like he didn't take hold of, of, of being an angel or like an angel, but he did take hold to the seeds of Abraham. Let me tell you what I believe this passage means. And it ought to enrich every one of our life to realize what God has done for us as our creator. Remember, Jesus Christ is our creator. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Do you realize we read in the scriptures about angels being condemned? but you don't ever read in the scripture about an angel being redeemed. You read about human beings sinning against God, but you read about them having the opportunity of redemption. What is he saying here in verse 16? Jesus didn't come to take on the form of an angel so that he could save angels. Someone says, preacher, explain why he didn't. I don't know why. This is one of those things, I, I don't think we have any way of knowing why. But what we know, we know. And we know this. He didn't take on the form of an angel so that he could save angels. He took up on the form of a man so that he could save mankind. Where do you fall in the mind of God? How much does God love you? God loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son to say to you, I'll give you a second chance. I'll give you a third chance. I'll give you a fourth chance. 
My Son became flesh so that you can be saved. But then also, notice that it qualifies Him to be a high priest. And, and if you know much about the Old Testament and, and how the Old Testament is, uh, we have the, the priesthood there and the sins that were offered, uh, the, the sins of the people were brought in a symbolic way of atonement by the high priest once a year so that, that their, their relationship with God could be sustained. And, and it was a very beautiful thing. And so now Jesus, look if you will here in verse 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, we had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that's appeasing God for our sins, for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And so he literally became a high priest for mankind. And, and you know, there, there would have been an idea that it's impossible for him to become a high priest for mankind because he was not a descendant of Aaron. And yet when we read in the book of Hebrews, he was a high priest like Melchizedek. And so we see the beauty of him not only being king, but him also being the ultimate high priest. Now, the final thing that I'd like for you to see here tonight, and then we'll move this lesson to a close, is look at 1 Peter, the second chapter in verse 21. And why did Jesus come to this earth? Something that is so helpful to all of us is that he came to this earth to be an example for us. In 1 Peter 2 and 21, 1 Peter 2 and 21, he said, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. Now keep in mind, he had to come to this earth to suffer for us. He had to take on flesh and blood to suffer for us. He came to this earth, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And so you want to know, what should we do with our life? And any time we can stop and say, what did Jesus do? We'll find the right answer. We'll find the right direction. Why do we have that blessing? We have it because Jesus came in flesh and blood. If he would not have done that, we would not have known a God who was like us, who showed us how to interact, whether it was times of suffering or times of rejoicing. Now, when we think about what he taught us by his example, I'd like to close tonight by taking you back again to Philippians 2 and 8. And, and this is wrapping up the lesson from this morning. Look in Philippians 2 and 8. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. This morning we looked at the fact of his pre-existence. We looked at the fact of the incarnation. And so now tonight we've come back and we looked a lot more at the incarnation. And the last thing that we've looked at the incarnation is the fact that while he's on this earth, he showed us how to live. So now let's take that and go back up to Philippians 2 now and say, what did he teach us how to live? One of the things he taught us how to live was to be obedient. Can you overrate obedience? mull that one over. Is it possible to say to someone, I think you put too much emphasis on obedience. If someone obeyed, what could we say? You are like your Lord. No. You could never overrate obedience. 
Now, when we fall short, what do we need? The grace of God. But what is the standard? The standard is obedience. Where do we learn the most about obedience? According to the examples here of Jesus, it's in times of suffering. When is it that you're most tempted to disobey? When it hurts, when it costs you a lot. That's when we're tempted. What did Jesus do at the time that that He knew the greatest suffering of His life was just around the corner and He was already emotionally beginning to carry that suffering? And He goes to the garden and in Hebrews, the fifth chapter, in verse 7, it was in those days of the flesh. In other words, while He was in flesh and blood that He offered up the prayers with supplication, with vehement cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death and was heard because of His godly fear. Though He was a son, yet He learned obedience by the things that He suffered. And being perfected, He became the author of eternal salvation to whom? All who obey Him. He learned. God in flesh learned. He learned obedience. And because He learned it, He became our Savior. He became the Savior for whom? For all who obey. Any of you that we've studied together in a class situation of parenting... You know that many times the first place I start teaching a class on parenting, and it's really also because of the spiritual lesson here. The first place to start is obedience. We really, really, really mess our kids up when we raise them that obedience is acceptable. And it doesn't matter how small it is. It's not, is it a big act of obedience or a little act of obedience? It's the principle. We can't be like our Lord and accept disobedience. And so from the youngest years, my rule is make few laws and enforce them all. You know, when you think about it, the Lord really didn't give us a lot of laws. But do you know how many He enforces? Every one of them He gave us. Why? Because He came to this earth in flesh and blood and He kept every law His Father gave Him. And that's the only reason. It's not the only. But without that, He would not have been a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Try overrating obedience and you'll fall short every time. Nobody here is perfect. No child here is perfect. No child of God here is perfect. But we better have a standard. A standard that says accepting disobedience. It's not like God. You know, this morning we talked about, do you know God? Do you know Him and it changed your life? You can't know God and accept in your life, I know I'm disobeying God. It just, it doesn't add up. It's like mixing oil and water. Tonight, God's grace 
is sufficient. And the times that we mess it up, because we all are going to, God died on the cross for our atonement. But when we get it right with God, and then say, now what's the standard going to be? God, I want to obey you. I want to lay my life down before you in every way. I want to obey you. Tonight, do you know Jesus? Is there any question more important that we could answer? Do you know Jesus? And if we can help you move closer to Jesus, if you're ready to be immersed into Christ for the remission of your sins, or you're ready to come back to Him, or, or you're just simply ready to study more about Him, if you'll let us know any way that we can help you, come as we stand as we sing.